Hey, everybody, you know who this is, and you know who you're listening to. This is the Magnificent One himself, and you're listening to Shut Up and Wrestle with my personal friend, Brian Solomon. As usual, mahalo and go F yourselves. Shut up and wrestle. fans and welcome to shut up and wrestle an old school wrestling podcast about good conversations and great stories i am your host brian r solomon and this is episode 19 of shut up and wrestle and this is going to be a lot of fun if you are a listener of the 605 super podcast or even if you're not because my guest this week is none other than the man himself Howard Baum, photographer, humorist, all around amazing guy, seen it all, done it all around the territories. We'll get into that conversation in just a few minutes, but there's a couple of things that I wanted to get to first. Um, I wanted to mention, first of all, the unfortunate passing of Melanie Pillman, the widow, of course, of Brian Pillman Sr., and Melanie is somebody that I got to know just a little bit a few years back when I worked the last Brian Pillman Memorial Show for WWE back in 2001. And um, even at that time, it was not difficult to see that she was somebody who was living with a lot of pain and a lot of anguish and a lot of demons. And um, of course, a lot of people saw her recently on the Dark Side of the Ring episode on Brian Pillman. And um, just some terrible news uh, that that pained me to hear about. So my thoughts, my prayers go out to the children and the stepchildren of Melanie Pillman at this time. Um, also want to mention on the on the book front, Blood and Fire, the unbelievable real life story of wrestling's original Sheik. My book, my biography of the original Sheik, Ed Farhat. Uh, a couple things. First of all, the audio book that I've mentioned before is out and uh, it's getting rave reviews. Apparently, a lot of you people out there like to listen to the sound of my voice. So go figure. But uh, again, if you want to hear me reading my book, Blood and Fire, then you can download that audiobook from audible.com or you can go to Amazon. It'll probably take you to the same place uh, for the audiobook of Shut Up and um, I'm sorry, the audiobook of Blood and Fire. And as far as physical copies, there's they're on sale. They're still available everywhere. And I also have some more signed copies for people that are interested in a signed copy of Blood and Fire. Do not hesitate to reach out to me at Solomon at yahoo.com, or you can find me on Twitter or Instagram. I did get my Instagram account back, thankfully. You can find me both of those places at Brian R. Solomon. But enough of all that, let's get to one of the most 
fun conversations that I've ever had since I started doing this show. This conversation with Howard is is a classic example of the kind of stream of consciousness just laid back, um, just just two people talking old school wrestling in a casual, um, unplanned way, exactly the way I, I envisioned this show to be when I was first uh, thinking about even starting a podcast. So I think you're going to you're going to really enjoy this. It's a lot of fun. Howard is such a unique and insightful individual and also funny as hell. So I'm going to take you to that conversation right now. Okay, so right now I want to bring to Shut Up and Wrestle somebody who, uh, as you know, Shut Up and Wrestle is part of the Arcadian Vanguard Network. So if you listen to the other Arcadian shows, especially 605 Super Podcast, then you definitely know this man. He's someone that I am extremely jealous of, I have to say right off the bat, because he's he's really kind of lived the dream um, in the classic territory days of wrestling, uh, you know, starting at age 16, he was photographing wrestling at the Miami Beach Convention Center. And we're talking about in the heyday of Eddie Graham, Dusty Rhodes, all that stuff happening in the territory days. Um, he got to be a part of the Memphis territory when it was the Memphis territory with Lance Russell and Jerry Lawler and everybody else. And um, photography really has been his main thing, you've seen his pictures in classic wrestling magazines from Pro Wrestling Illustrated to Gong to Wrestling's Main Event, Sports Review Wrestling, Fighting Spirit, the O'Hara Wrestling Magazines, you name it. Um, he has done it. He's been a promoter in the Bahamas. We'll talk about that. I didn't even know they had wrestling in the Bahamas. He's been a ring announcer, commentator, radio host. Um, and I want to mention, too, uh, his wrestling photography is uh, featured on his website, which is Hardway Art, which you, which we'll talk about a little bit, too. And you guys could look that up. Um, I'm talking about the one and only Howard Baum. Welcome to the podcast, Howard. Wow, man. I'm glad the video portion of this is not going to air because you got me blushing over here. I, I am completely honored. And back at you, my friend, because I've been watching your meteoric ascension and all your hard work. Obviously, you worked for WWE back in the day and all that. But even what you're doing right now, you're on fire. You're all over the place. You're promoting your hot new book that I'm sure everybody knows about. And uh, I'm truly honored to be here with one of the true menches, the, one of the last old school gentlemen one of the few wrestling people who can present themselves as a professional in the real world, Mr. Brian Solomon. And it's ironic that you should say all that nice stuff about me and my accomplishments, because you certainly have checked off a lot of things on my bucket list that I know that I won't be able to accomplish in my lifetime. So back at you, my friend. And I applaud all your recent success. And I know you've only just begun and i'm thrilled to be here and let's get this party started wow that's the first time that any guest ever gave me an introduction so that's great it was like mutual introductions i like that you know this business one hand scratches the other <laughs> something like that so well, let me ask you this yeah, whenever on. i'm on a new show and i and I've regrettably we never had the chance to hook up in person maybe that'll change this year cac yes. i w h p o whatever um, 
IPWHF. Oh, um, <laughs> is that what you're trying to That's say? what I was trying to yeah. say. Exactly. I have, I have deep learning disorders here. But I, I always like to know when I go on a new show or interact with somebody new, like for a reference point, when they actually discovered wrestling and compare and contrast that with my own experience. So then I can tell exactly where we intersect, what we both saw live, what we both saw retrospectively. So when did wrestling first come on your radar? What was your first exposure to it? So I have a couple of answers to that question because it's a different thing to me. Like when did you first find out about pro wrestling and when did you really get into it? Like to me, those are two different things. I'm a little bit younger than you. And even though I'm, you know, I'm fascinated by the old school stuff. And I wrote a book about a guy that peaked 50 years ago. I wasn't even born yet. Right. But if I'm talking about my own experience, the, okay. So the first time I ever was aware of pro wrestling, I was in kindergarten and I'll, I'll tell you why. Uh, Now you're originally from, I know you live in Florida, but you're from the New York area, right? Or New Jersey. Correct. Correct. I'm from, all right. I'm going to I want to tell my st- I want to tell my story, but I want to see your story and how they intersect. But I'm from Union, New Jersey, WWF right. territory. That's what I thought. So, you know how back in those days they would do like those sea level shows at like elementary school gyms and that kind right. of thing. All right. So in my school, my Catholic school, Regina Podges School in Brooklyn, they had a they would do shows at the youth center. Right. And so I'm in kindergarten, they're giving us a tour of the school and we're walking past the youth center where the gym is. And there's a giant poster on the window there talking about uh, coming soon, uh, uh, um, Chief Jay Strongbow coming to get revenge against Greg the Hammer Valentine for breaking his leg, which was the classic (laughs) feud that they copied from Wahoo McDaniel. And I'm looking and there's like a guy dressed like an Indian and and there's like this angry looking little stocky Valentine guy. And I'm like, what? What is this? This is so strange. But I didn't really get into it, watching it until years later. It was WrestleMania three, 1987, the whole build up to that with and I know it's a very generic response but like because so many people my age will say the same thing it was the whole Andre the Giant Hulk Hogan thing when you're 12 years old you're looking at it going is this drama what is this a sport what is this like he ripped this guy's crucifix off he's practically crying Roddy Piper is down there trying to console him he's bleeding from the chest like I, I just had to find out more and that made me a crazy fan so from 87 on but then i also wanted to find out everything that happened before that and so then i started getting into the history right so did you react like the typical um young mark so to speak like you cheered the baby faces and you were into hulk hogan and you hated the heels like roddy piper well or i was, was there something bigger going yeah. on as yeah. a whole i have to say that- Oh, go on, go on. That took you in, like the overall gestalt of the business. Like, what is this? Because that's what attracted me. Like, I was always drawn to the heels, first of all. I mean, the only baby face I ever liked, Steve Kern, because he was like a tough baby face. He was like the first cool baby face in Florida that I saw because he didn't do all that hello, ma'am stuff. And his style was really hard hitting and it stood out to me. And Dusty Rhodes, because he had so much charisma and he was in every good feud and he bled he was one of the few baby faces that I liked. 
I thought Jack Briscoe was boring as hell. I hate to admit that now. I was a child. Looking back on him now, I think he's the master. I think he's underrated, if anything. I, I mean, he, he does job matches and stuff and is just breathtaking. He's like a gazelle in the ring. But anyway, I digress. I don't know what the hell I was talking about a minute ago. Well, no, you were asking I... if I cheered for the heels or the faces or that. Yeah, kind of like, were you just into it like every other young kid? Like, oh, I like Hulk Hogan. I hate King Kong Bundy. No. Or was it like, were you drawn in like I was to the circus aspect, the underground, yeah. freakish, otherworldly comic book fantasy aspect of it? Well, the thing for me, and I think I mentioned this a few weeks ago on here, but one of the ways I came to wrestling and I would hear about it as a kid was my uncle was a big fan, my grandmother's brother. Okay. And he was in the theater. He was an actor. He was in a performer. And so he never watched it as a mark. He, he wasn't like cheering and booing. He right. watched it for the performers. He would laugh his ass off. Right. Like when, when Baron Mikel Cicluna would be hiding the foreign object from the ref and like moving it back and forth and all around, like he would be dying laughing. He would, he would die laughing at, you know, Randy Savage promos. He thought were hilarious. <laughs> you know, so he, 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 so watching him, I learned about it like as a performance. So even as a kid, it wasn't so much that I liked heels or I liked faces. I would be interested in the people that I just thought were really good, even if I couldn't articulate it as a kid who were really good performers, like whether it was in the ring performers, like their matches were really exciting. Like I loved Ricky Steamboat. I loved Randy Savage. I loved all that stuff or even just the promo stuff. And so Hulk Hogan, like you mentioned, I hated him. Now, I will say as a caveat, like you're saying about Jack Briscoe, years later, and this partly comes even from interacting with Hogan and actually getting to pick his brain as a performer, which was wild. Hmm. I've actually gotten a lot more respect for him as a performer, as an adult for what he was able to do, because in his own way, he did something magical that a lot of people would not have been able to do. He just really did. But as a kid, I didn't want to hear about it. I just, I hated the fact that this guy just won every single match. It was the same thing. Every time it was the same match you knew what was going to happen. Even as a kid, I figured it out. Every show right. was going to end with him doing the poses and the thing. Right. And, and I don't know, like, I don't know how I would have done during the Bruno era because I, I, I love Bruno. I, I, I come from a, a half Italian American family, but I don't know how I would have done with a guy that just won year after year after year. So I just wanted to see him lose. I remember when they did the angle with the twin referees and Andre the Giant. I was the only kid in America I think that was jumping up and down on my couch. I was so excited. I didn't <laughs> care. And my dad's looking at me. We're watching this thing, the main event, right? And my dad's going, yeah. how could how could you cheer for this? Didn't you see what they did? They, they, they paid off the referee. This is, <laughs> this, is, this, is, this is illegal. He didn't lose. And I'm right. like, I don't care, dad. I, someone other than Hulk Hogan is the champion. I'm happy. That's how I thought back then. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. Really interesting. Because like I allude, okay, well, this is another question that I ask a lot of my Northeast friends, and I ask myself this question, because I'm from Union, New Jersey, glorious Union, New Jersey, Carmine Desperito and myself are two of the most famous people from Union, Artie Lang, too, and uh, oh, wow. and uh, the Goodfellas guy, too, uh, you know, the Chantix guy. Can't think of it right now. Ray, Ray Liotta. Oh, yeah. We're the, we're the, they call us the big four. Liotta, 
<laughs> Lang, <laughs> Carmine, and myself were in Union. We're very, very big to this day in Livingston, Springfield, surrounding areas. Okay, the question that I always have for myself, and I'll tell you, the, my roots as a wrestling fan, um, and they go early and deep, but. I asked myself this question retroactively, and I can illustrate my point through this story. We had already moved to Florida from New Jersey in 1974. Years later, uh, I think it was 1977, so I would have been 11 years old, and it was a treat, and I had a babysitter, and I was at my aunt's fancy house in uh, Short Hills, and they had a brook under their house, the whole nine yards. My parents were going out with my fancy aunt and uncle that night. And I had like a cool lady babysitter. I was 11. And it was a dog's dinner for me because it was going to be WOR wrestling and creature feature Saturday night. Perfect. So, it was, so um, I'm like, oh, my God, after all these years. And I was already a Florida wrestling fan for three years leading up to this. Um, I'm like, oh, my God, I'm finally going to see all these guys, all these WWF guys from the magazines, Bruno, everybody. And I sat through all these job matches, you know, think of 1977, uh, WWF TV, and I sat through everything. Then finally, Bruno comes out and they do those stand up interviews with Vince in front of the ring. And first, Baron Von Raschke comes out and it, it, it was I may be proven wrong. My memory wants to tell me that it was Baron Von Raschke. I could easily see where it might have been Nikolai Volkov just through faulty memory. And they were like, they gave a generic foreign heel promo. I think Fred Blassie might have been with them. And I'm like, eh, I think it was Raschke because I was expecting a lot more based on what the magazines mm. portrayed him as, like a real Nazi killer, this, this really heinous guy. And then Bruno comes out. I'm like, all right, well, that was underwhelming. Let me see Bruno now. Like, I was psyched. And he's like, oh, let me tell you something. Uh, you really got my temper going now. And I tell you, when I, I'm like, oh, my God, this sucks. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry, wrestling world. I know. I know. As Andy Coffin would say. But goddamn. I just spent three years coming off of Dusty Rhodes and Blood Every Night right. and, and superstar Billy Graham in the flesh and everything. And Bruno is out there like, you know, he punched me really hard in the stomach last time. And I swear, <laughs> I swear to you people, I almost got back in there to get him. But this time there's going to be no count outs, no nothing like that. And I'm going to once I get my hands on you, you know, you scoundrel. And I'm sorry. So this is the question that illustrates my point. Okay, if I would have stayed up there, I like the weird, I like the freaky. Um, I don't know if I would have been a wrestling fan if I would right. have stayed, if I would have been just a New Jersey kid. Um, I really don't. Look at those high school shows that you just, I mean, those those cards of the stuff they were right there. They, they have were like rough. one name, like Superstar Graham against Jay Strongbow, and then 18 Puerto Rican guys you never heard of. Manuel, Manuel Soto, Soto versus right. Jose Rodriguez. It'll right. be, uh, yeah. it'll be yeah. you know, just I every... Know. Um, I'm sorry, no aspersions intended, but that's brutal. Well, I've it, never seen such cards. It, it, was a, it was definitely a different kind of product. And if you, you know, <laughs> if you watch... Well, here's the thing. It's like they always say, the promoters would educate the fans in their territory as right. to the kind of wrestling to accept and people would right. be okay with it. 
So, you know, like if you're in St. Louis, you're used to watching this and you accept this and it's very clean and sports like and blah, blah, blah. And then you go to Detroit and people are throwing fire at each other and tables and right. all this stuff and you just accept it. But like if you watch a lot of those old like the WWF all star wrestling, they're on um, Peacock now, the WWE Network. And, you know, yeah, I mean, it's very dry, especially if you're mm-hmm. comparing it to like watching, say, Mid-South episodes and things oh, like that. 70- there's 70 stuff. I, I will it's say this. Date. Like, it, somebody described it to me actually as the best thing you could say about it is that it's comforting, like, like almost like yeah, watching yeah. A, a relaxing baseball game, like nothing too crazy happening. You could just kick back with a beer yeah. and just listen to the, the kind of it's, it's, it's almost like ambient sound in a way. It doesn't get too exciting. Those weekly shows. Yeah. And you know, you know, what's funny about, that one territory, like you're famously half Jewish. Well, I am famously 100% Jewish and I am by no means an athlete and I wouldn't survive with my immune system and my particular DNA for five minutes in the freaking wrestling business. You put me in a territory like Georgia, Florida, I'd be dead halfway through the first night. Okay. But I think WWF circa 1976, I could have hacked it. I think I could have been semi-main. Well, I mean, given the, work, given the work rate up there, let's work a, a leg for ninety-five minutes and then well, do <laughs> and then do three and then do three seconds of action and go to a countout. Okay? Well, John Arezzi had a couple of matches up there. I mean, that well, you know, John, you I mean, look, I love John. He's not the the athlete of the year. You know what I mean? I mean, okay, this is. I mean, okay, George's jobbers look like they could drop dead from like you know, God knows what. At any minute, but WWF, did they like go to Skid Row or Nightmare Alley to get their people or why be these guys? They looked like they were going to plot before they even got near the ring. But Lee Wong, Israel Matea. I mean, the list goes on and on. Joe Turco. The, 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 the continental nobleman. The continental nobleman. He looked like. When he was higher up on the card and then it became ironic. <laughs> Right. No, it, it's true. It was it was a much more sedate style. But here's the thing. I'm going to give my take on this and my devil's advocate. I'm going to I'm going to respond. I'm going to re- re- rebut this. So Dusty Rhodes, you mentioned, right? right. Bruno San Martino couldn't be two more different baby faces than those two guys, but both hugely popular. Here's here's the thing. The way I, I see it from my own. Look, you were there. I was not there. But this is the way I see it. Like Dusty was a complete game changer as a baby face because really before dusty what you described as bruno like every baby face sounded that way like like the heels were the colorful oh, yeah. ones the heels were the great promos yeah the heels were the quote-unquote characters the baby faces were just regular guys it was like they didn't even they didn't really have a character it was just i'm this regular everyman guy and i'm gonna hold my own against this complete psychomaniac over right, here. Dusty right. was like the first baby face where they were colorful and interesting. Yeah. And so with the guys like Bruno, I think in order to, to love him, I think, and for him to be beloved, it took a level of belief that doesn't exist anymore. So like mm-hmm. people loved Bruno, not because he was entertaining or he was a great quote unquote performer, but because they believed in him. He was like a sports hero to them. So like, so he didn't have to do as much as like, you know, in that, in that way, he could just be himself 
and people just loved him because of who he was. And you know? and listen, I don't want the cards and letters to come in. First of all, I agree with everything you just said, and that man conducted himself like a gentleman and a championship athlete. And I met him so many times that it was comical because, you know, he's not really my guy, as I've said before. And like, I quake when I'm around Dusty Rhodes or Steve Kern, you know, people that were superstar Graham, like I quake. And, but Bruno was never like my guy per se. So as big a name as he was, I was always really casual around him. So I got to see a really normal human side of him because I wasn't in awe, which is amazing to, I'm sure all my Italian American friends who just, you know, whatever the Italian word for plots is every time, like, oh, Bruno's the man. He's like, that's my guy. And I get it. I totally get it. And um, if you look at that style back then, yes, his match was the climax to that was a lot of action. That was a blow off. That was a thing. And it's true. Every baby face back then, like if they really, really get riled up, they might say that they're going to kick somebody's fanny or high end end or something like, right. you know, when I get really mad, I lose my cool like that too. I mean, you're talking about, you're talking about an era where if a baby face was balling his hand into a fist, it was a big deal. It was like, Oh my God, he's losing it. This guy's losing it. You know, you know, that's finally, he's getting mad. He's going to, he's going to do something now. Yeah. Yeah. Like, Oh, we're going to see the revenge. Right. Um, yeah. So, I mean, so that's, I mean, this is just the beginning. Let's, why don't we talk about something more current unless, oh, we didn't even talk about my humble roots. Let's, how long yeah, is be, the show, by the way? It's, I, I usually go about an hour. So, okay, uh, okay. I'll, but, I'll get, I'll just, for people who might not have heard of me and why is this guy talking, right. why is this blowhard talking with such authority? <laughs> I'll just give you the very, Please. my, in 1974, we moved from Union, New Jersey to Miami, Florida. I walked in to uh, a temporary place we're staying at, which was the same condo that our own Barry Rose happened to be living in at that time. Barry Rose and I, just a sidebar, have lived parallel lives this entire time. He's like a few years older than me, not a knock, just a statement of fact. And he was there before I was, a creature of the Miami Beach Convention Center. He set up a gimmick table. I set up a gimmick table after he did um and we never really got to hang out that much until recently we actually did at one of his conventions in florida i've come to find out and form my opinion after 40 years that he's a good mensch he's a good guy i really like him i never knew whatever he's one of the few south florida guys i never hung out with end of sidebar back to the arlen house 1974 i walk in my dad is watching something an Espanol Canal 23, a blue mat from the auditorium, all hell's breaking loose, Hollywood Blondes, Louis Tillette, Pac Song, and Sir Oliver Humperdinck himself gets stabbed in the eye with something and is bleeding <laughs> like a stuck pig. And I said to my dad at eight years of age, what is that? <laughs> and that was the end of that. That was the day that I met professional wrestling. And that was just Spanish. I didn't understand it. Then I went into a, a bookstore and I discovered the magazines, which is an entire um, 
episode that we can do on its own because yeah. I've heard you I've heard you speak on this before, and it's something very near and dear to my heart because the magazines were truly the lifeblood of this business. If you took TV away, magazines were the star makers that determined your international and national wrestling stars. That was your only exposure to a foreign stars gimmick. The only reason that you knew to fear Abdullah the Butcher or wait for Mr. Wrestling 2 to come is because you've seen them in the magazines all these years. The magazines built up 90% of a wrestler's mystique back in the day. It cannot be over-exaggerated. And I might add that mystique is something that has been 1,000% decimated in this day and age of behind the scenes of behind the scenes. Anyway, back to Miami, 1974. I hated all the normal stuff. I was always a freak. I was into monsters and I was into anything unusual, freak shows. And then I'm like over my friend's house and I'm like, what's this? He's like, oh, it's local wrestling. We're going to go this week. I go to my dad. This is local. We can go to this. (laughs) What? So 1975, I go and my first main event is Jack Briscoe and Rocky Johnson. And here I am, nine years old, exposed to Florida wrestling, the greatest territory of all time, in the midst of its prime period. So it's in my DNA. I made it my life's mission to become a photographer based on being inspired by said magazines. And I went on from there to shoot. And, you know, you gave my whole spiel before. I've done a bunch of stuff. And I've been around a long time. And I think just that my biggest strength I don't even consider myself someone who's like been in the wrestling business. I consider myself like fourth tier um, fly on the wall, you know. Um, And yet still, and yet still maybe ahead of a lot of people that do consider themselves in the wrestling business, because how do you really define yourself? And yet again, that's an entire episode. Well, you know, that's the thing in a way is like when I, I, I had already known of you, even before the 605, just because, in fact, I think even one of my previous books, I think Pro Wrestling FAQ, I may have even used a couple of your shots in even before the Sheik book. But, you know, I first kind of got to hear you tell your stories and your experiences on the 605. And I have to say, you know, this is not just because you're staring at me right now, but this, (laughs) but, but that was one of the things that hooked me on the 605 super podcast was wow. like, because I could relate to it. That was the thing, like in my own way, because I had been a part of that world, but in a way where like, I'm not somebody that people know, like, Oh, as some famous wrestling guy, but I've been around everybody. I've seen yeah. everything. Anybody you want to name almost who was a big star in like the seventies, eighties, nineties, two thousands. I've been around them. I've talked to them. Right. I have these so so listening to you, it was like, oh, wow, I could really relate to this, except that, like when I said the jealousy came in because I was like, you know, it's almost like the grass is always greener and you always want what you don't have. Like I got to work for WWE, which was you know the biggest wrestling company in the exactly. history of humanity. Exactly. Right. Exactly. But in my head, I was always thinking, 
oh, I wish I could have been around during the territories. I wish I could have like traveled the roads and like been to all these. And I'm like, this guy did this. This guy was around Lance Russell and, 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 okay. you know, I mean, this is, a, this, this is, that's what blew my mind more than anything. All right, my friend. All right, my friend. You have hit Gordon Soley, my God, you know. You've hit the nail on the damn head because, okay, this is exactly what I was alluding to when, I said that you have checked things off of my bucket list and I've checked things off of your bucket list because not a day goes by. I can't believe that I have hung out with like, like those people that you just said, I can't believe it. And I would not trade that for anything yet. Like you just said, you got to know all these people. You had a real job with the biggest company during a hot period. Right. Yeah. I mean, come on, that's amazing. I would almost have to trade you, but then give up my hanging out with everybody, like every name I ever wanted to meet. The only people that I've never met, I just want to interject this. Um, the only people that I ever had a desire to meet at all that I never met are the Sheik, King Curtis, Ernie Ladd, Bruiser Crusher, I think that's got to be it. Well, it's too late for any of those guys. Sorry. Exactly. (laughs) Which is why my list is finalized because of any living person, there's like nobody that I feel like I missed. Like, oh, I got at least enough of a sense, even if it wasn't a formal introduction, even if they don't know my name, I got a sense of every major name of everybody that I ever cared about in this business, which is incredible. I had a very short... I mean, there were plenty of people that I wanted to encounter, but I had in my mind, and again, I'm, I'm a little younger too. My, I'm sorry I keep saying that, Howard. That's really no, like no, no, no. At, at this point, it's ubiquitous. It's ubiquitous. I mean, me. I, I'm no kid. I mean, I'm closing in on 50 myself, but, but I mean, when I worked there, when I first got to work there, I had five names in my mind and I said, this is my bucket list of the must. I must interact with these people. And I'm proud to say every one of those five, I either got to talk with extensively on the phone or met in person. And they weren't even all affiliated with WWE. I'm just like somehow, some way. Right. And it was Bruno San Martino, Luthez, Freddie Blassie, uh, Bret Hart. Who the hell was the fifth guy? I don't even remember. Oh, Ric Flair, Ric Flair. Oh, wow. And I got to speak significantly with four of those guys. Blassie, I encountered briefly in the office, and I was so dumbfounded that I was speechless. I couldn't say anything. Yeah. It was it was in an elevator, and I felt like such an idiot. And I yeah. was just like, he, he, you know, I, I'm getting on, he's getting off. And the last thing you expect, elevator doors open, is classy Freddie Blassie oh to walk God. out with his wife. And, I'm, you know, he was very old and frail, but still, yeah. I, I just completely froze up but at least i could say i I was around him i was in his presence but the other four i got to have long conversations with and flair i was got to talk face to face with of those and um uh the the others and bruno as well and with thez and bread it was it was on the phone but extensively on the phone so i kind of had that stuff in my head too of of the people that i wanted to be around yeah did i ever tell i don't think i ever told you my terry funk story can i i don't want to make this about me but can i tell you of course so this was at the time when dusty was 
on the creative team at WWE. They had hired him. And uh, so it was maybe like 2004, five-ish, like that. And they were having Raw in Las Vegas. And I think they were doing a vignette maybe that they wanted Terry Funk involved in. I don't remember why he was there, but he was there. And I'm standing at the elevator to go like down to the bowels of the arena, you know, before the show. And he walks up next to me, Terry Funk. And I'm just saying, I'm trying to, you know, I'm trying to do that thing that you do where you just want to play it off. Like, yep, this right. is totally normal. Nothing strange here. Right. And, and he, he starts the conversation with me. He looks over and he says, Ah, my name's Terry, you know, <laughs> and he puts his hand out and I'm thinking, of, of course, your name is Terry. I know. And I, I'm Brian. And well, what do you do here, Brian? And we get into this whole conversation. I work for the magazines. And so he knows I'm in the company. Right. So he starts to open up a little bit and he's telling me like his whole theory on why Raw is, you know, the most successful wrestling show of all time. And he goes right. to me, you know, I, I said this to Vince once. And this is a terrible Terry Funk. But he goes, <laughs> you know, uh, Monday Night Raw, it's like it's kind of like Bonanza. You know, it's been on the air year after year. And they keep changing the characters to keep it fresh. And, you know, that's what Vince is doing. And he's doing a great job. And we're having this whole conversation. We get down to the backstage area. We get out. Dusty Rhodes is there having a <laughs> conversation with some, like, intern or something. Yeah. And I'm going, I'm standing next to Terry Funk and about 20 feet ahead of us is Dusty Rhodes. And I'm thinking like, I don't know the last time they've encountered each other. It might've been years right, for all I know, right. but here's Terry Funk and Dusty Rhodes about to interact. They start to talk, you know, they embrace, they're shaking hands. And I'm just standing there watching this. And yeah. Dusty says to Terry, he goes, uh, he goes to him. I forget how he said it. He's like, I'll be right back, Terry. I just got to go to the bathroom. It'll it'll only take a minute. And Funk, <laughs> Funk, without missing a beat, he goes, I'll believe that when I see it, Dream. I'll believe <laughs> that when I see it. And I just thought, like, I'm the only one getting to witness this right. on the planet. This is just happening for me, you know? Right. And, you know, Terry Funk making fun of Dusty Rhodes' bowel movements just right, right here in front of me, like nothing, you know? Right. That's, you see, exactly. That's, like... Uh, that's really the coin of the realm, you know, like, okay, I'll tell you like my funniest example of that backstage mid South Coliseum, uh, Pete Letterberg and I are talking to Jerry, the King Lawler at the height of his fame, probably 1984. And uh, Randy Hales comes up to him and we're trying to get people to go to our um, convention, like, you know, fill out the tables, make it look good, whatever. And it wasn't a big ordeal like it is today. I mean, it was dozens of people, not hundreds like they do today. I mean, it was just very intimate. And um, so Randy Hales happens to walk by. We're talking to Lawler. I'm like, I'm 18 at the time, freshly 18, like young 18, unworldly 18. And there's Pete Letterberg. He's not much better, to be honest, folks. And um, sorry, Pete, everything's fine. Everything's cool. Um, anyway. Anyhow, talking to Jerry the King Lawler, the back of the Mid-South, Randy Hales comes by and uh, we're like, yeah, King, we're looking for people to show up and come to our banquet. And um, Randy Hales comes by and King goes, Randy, you're coming, right? Like, like, no's not even an answer. And he's like, oh, King, it's my day off. I was going to spend the day. He's like, why don't I just fire your ass? You can have every day off. <laughs> I'm like, but Pete 
Futterberg and I are the only two people in the world that witnessed that. Right. And the thing about that is he shit on a guy that he's known for 15 years previous and will know for another 20 years previous in front of two guys that are in and out, never to be seen again. And he, I mean, it's like, that was gold. And then the same night, Michael Hayes walked by and they had a, like, keep up kayfabe. This was 1985. And Michael Michael Hayes sees me and Pete talking to um, Lawler. And uh, I'm like, oh, this is going to be good. What's going to happen? And it was just us, just the four of us backstage. I'm like, what's he going to do? Like, we were smart, obviously. And Michael Hayes goes, I'm going to kick your ass, Lawler. And he walked away. <laughs> and Lawler like didn't even change the expression on his face because he knew that we were cool. So he just gave like half a smile and we went back to talking about what we were talking about. I'm like, oh my God. That's like so Michael Hayes went out of his way to perform a kayfabe act, like just for us. That's for him. And oh Lawler was probably God. like I bet Lola was probably like kind of embarrassed, just like, oh, you don't have to well, do yeah, that, exactly. Michael. You don't have to do exactly. that right now. He closed his mouth like, you know, I know that wasn't necessary. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> but great. I mean, to look at us, no, to look at us. If I was Michael Hayes, believe me, I would have done the same thing. But we, we, um, we, no, go on, go on. No, we, we didn't look like your typical Memphis hardened uh, wrestling people. So how did you wind up... Uh, in in memphis from florida how did how did that happen i think All you may right, have well, talked about you may have talked about this before and i apologize yeah, yeah. If you, yeah. i don't know this is completely i'm indebted to pete letterberg for life because what had happened was these guys that used to have the wrestling fans international association don wilson and dave brzezinski um uh I don't know what happened. As I say, I was a child. I was like 17 going on 18. It was 1984. All of a sudden, Pete got the rights to the name from Don Wilson, but then other people weren't happy about it. It was like a whole thing at the time, but I didn't care. I was a kid. I was in high school. I like whatever. So one day Pete's like, we have this thing now. We'll go to Memphis. I'm like, excellent. And our whole goal because we went the year before. Pete had been to others, but my first one was the year before, 1983. So, so you're talking about, just to be clear for people that may not be familiar, you're talking about the WFIA convention, right? Which was like the big mm-hmm. fan convention every year? Right. Now, this group had been in existence since the 60s, if I'm not mistaken. And oh, yeah. um, all of the inside wrestling people uh, would host it at different places like Houston, Memphis, and then it had been in Memphis for the previous years leading up to that. And I went to the one in 1983 as a fan, 17 years old. And that's when I was introduced to Memphis wrestling. And once again, Pete, he's like my wrestling big brother. He turned me on to, he educated me on Memphis before I got there. He goes, this is Lance Russell and Jerry Lawler and everything. Like I, was, I knew through the magazines who Lawler was, but I didn't get the whole Memphis deal. Right. And I get up there and we start doing the loop and we start going to house shows and small shows and big shows and uh, Jackson, Tennessee, Monday night, another uh, Wednesday. I don't know what night Jackson, Tennessee, maybe a Thursday. I'm trying to look like a local, but I'm blowing it Sunday night. Jackson, Tennessee is Sunday night. You're just another one of those uppity Jews from Hollywood, just like Andy. Right, Kaufman. I can, imagine, can you imagine <laughs> the stuff that I heard? Oh, God. I know. Yeah. 
I, I, I don't think I, they know what Jews are. I don't, I don't think they insulted us because I don't think they knew what Jews were. I thought they just. I, I remember Lawler. I remember Lawler on WWF television one one time, with where they mentioned that a guy, it may have been Steve Blackman, somebody. They said uh, this guy is an expert in judo, and Lawler goes, "Isn't that what they make bagels out of?" <laughs> this was like on Monday Night Raw. You know, crazy. <laughs> well, my friend, that is. Pretty freaking tame. Oh, I know, to, no, I know it is. No, I know it is. Uh, some things that I have heard around town, but uh, yeah. In any event, in any event, where were we? My mind just reels with all the inappropriate things I've I've heard from big names over the years. I'm trying to I'm trying to uh, stay. Oh, I know. The, the first time that WWF sent me on the road, I went down to Virginia because Bob Holly. <laughs> who really was a race car driver. He did NHRA and WWF. I thought, had... I thought you were, I have to interject. I thought you were going to say who really was a racist. <laughs> no, no, no. He actually, no, he actually was a super nice guy. He's prickly as hell and you got to be on his nice side, but he was very nice to me always. He, he okay. really liked me. And, and, but so they sent me down there cause he was doing, they had at that time, the short lived WWF racing, believe it or not. They had NHRA cars. And so Bob Holly was racing. So it wasn't Bob. But when I was down there, the circles that I was moving in, I had never really been in the American South very much. I'm so sorry to my Southern listeners listening. I know these, this does not refer to you guys. But but the things that I heard just <laughs> casually, just because ca- here's the thing. I grew up in New York. I grew up around a lot of Italian-Americans, Irish-Americans. Two groups not always known for their racial tolerance, certainly not, but nothing doesn't hold a candle to the things you hear when you go below the Mason-Dixon line, just casually spoken, like things that would make your eyebrows fall out, just just to listen. yeah. Just casually. It's so casual that it can't even be malicious, which is stupid to say. (laughs) <laughs> but I mean, I wish you guys, I mean, I wish, I wish this was video, like, you know, Brian records on Zoom and like, you know, it's, it's working a different style communicating through words and through if you know your face is going to be shown. And I, I mean, the faces I'm making during this, because I just think of so many incidents that I've witnessed through big names and just the casual nature that it was flung about. Um, yeah. So, hey. Um, well, we've been, we... I've been there. I, I know, I know exactly what you're talking about. I've seen it and, uh, it is what it is, but, um, you know, I, I, I want to mention something real quick though. And, and I'm sorry, I don't mean to cut you off. If you had somewhere else you were, you wanted to go with that, <laughs> but I would be remiss if I didn't get into this because when I'm talking about, um, 605 and hearing you on there and hearing your stories, the other thing that grabbed me about just that show in general was the humor of it because here's the thing like with a lot of wrestling a lot of times you don't really get smart clever humor you know you get stuff that's supposed to be funny it's not really funny or it's kind of childish or whatever but what 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 brian and everybody does on there is like um it's like heyday of howard stern level stuff and i had never heard people doing that kind of stuff around wrestling 
And right. a lot of that was you. So like, I, I mean, genuinely funny, like pulling my car over to the side of the road, <laughs> funny kind of thing, like that kind of thing. And so, and one of the things, and I mentioned this to you before we, we started recording, even though is that um, your magnificent Morocco impression. And I'm sorry <laughs> if I put you on the spot is the see everyone has their dusty roads i just did mine everyone right. has their terry funk i did mine people have their macho man everybody does that kind of thing but you have a morocco that just captures the nuances and everything if i can please bug you to could you just like grace us with a little bit of it is that possible extemporaneously all right well i think you know what let's let's I have two things I want to bring up and then let's do that for the blow off because now. Perfect. So I know you wanted to talk about Dusty Rhodes. That was the other thing I absolutely wanted to get to because we were talking some fascinating stuff before we even started recording because, you know, I mentioned all the Howard Baum accolades. I mentioned wrestling photographer. I mentioned manager. I mentioned announcer. I mentioned all that stuff. I did not mention armchair psychologist. So we (laughs) we can get into that because. You have some interesting insights on the, the, the mind of Dusty Rhodes. Well, I just, uh, just taking a spritz of seltzer here. I always get ultra Jewish when I'm around my lawnsman. Um, my the, theory. A lot of Yiddish I, getting flown around in this episode. Um, it's, it's really ironic. It's only around Nazis and, and, and fellow MOTs that I get like that. The rest of the time, I'm like, what? I'm Italian. I always tell people I'm 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 uh, half Jewish and half Italian. If I can't get it wholesale, I steal it. <laughs> Which I stole that line from Jackie Mason, but it's gotten a lot of mileage. Oh my god! So. I saw him. Um, I saw him at the Diplomat Hotel in a rehearsal show. It was like free to the public, or like five bucks to get in, and it was the most classic old school <laughs> thing I've ever seen in my life. Mister, and in the middle Mister, of it, I'm talking to you, Mister. He, he threw a lady and her baby out and people thought they were joking and the oh baby was crying. He's like, serious? You think I'm joking? I'm not kidding. Who could do, who brings a baby to a comedy show? And my friend and I were dying laughing. He literally kicked her out in Jackie Mason style. He's like, who brings a baby to a comedy store? How do you expect me to wake up here? Do you expect a man actually- like me to work in a show like this with an audience like this? <laughs> and then after he was greeting people by the door, I shook his hand. He had like this uh, middle-aged blonde broad with him, like exactly what you would expect. Very crusty, very crusty, the clown. <laughs> but, um, okay. So Dusty, Dusty yeah. here's the thing. He has a reputation among people for being an ass. And I've seen him be cool and I've seen him be an ass. And I was always ultra intimidated around Dusty. I saw him in different scenarios back from when I was a photographer and backstage um, up through when he tried to revive Florida wrestling. And I saw him backstage in more of a promoter role and wrestler role. And some of my stories are secondhand Howard Brody. And some of them are hanging around him at conventions when Sir Oliver Humperdinck would introduce us because Humperdinck, assumed that Dusty would know me, but he didn't. And the thing is, Dusty was like rude to a fan in North Carolina at one of the conventions. And then Humperdinck and Dick Slater were there who I was already talking to. And then Dusty came up and then Dusty was rude to a fan. And um, 
Well, I may as well tell you what I said to him because I actually busted him and he kind of appreciated it. But I left the conversation shortly because Hump assumed that Dusty knew me and I didn't want to intrude on their thing because they obviously had not seen each other in a while and they don't need me hanging around. So I already talked to Slater and Hump and like I was curious to hang around and talk to Dusty, but I didn't want to impede them, you know, so I'm just like, I'll let you guys catch up. So what happened was this fan, this really nice guy, middle aged guy comes up to Dusty as he's walking up to us and he goes, Dream, I'm your biggest fan. Can I get a picture with you? And there was like nobody around. Or he's like, can I get your autograph? He goes, yeah, in 15 minutes for about $25. And he walked away from the guy. And he comes over to us. And I go, wow, what a baby face. And he and, and Dusty like cracked a half smile. And in his real life voice, he goes, <laughs> he goes, I'm a baby face. And I'm like, that's that's all I needed. That's my Dusty Rhodes story. I'm walking away now. I'm doing a Costanza. I'm going away. And I, I actually busted Dusty Rhodes and he acknowledged it. So I'm like, it doesn't get any better than that. I'm gone. Well, the thing that, you know, look, I'm not a babe in the woods and some, you know, very uh, idealistic person when it comes to wrestling. And I understand that guys are not who they are on TV. And that goes right. for all celebrities, really. I mean, I get that. But the thing that always hurt me, I say hurt me, which is ridiculous, like he did something personal <laughs> to me. Right. But the thing that always like, I don't know, like it broke my heart a little bit about Dusty being that way. Yeah, is because he was a guy who built his entire reputation on being this every man and being this warm, convivial, like I'm one of the people kind of guy. And right. then you hear things like that. Right. It is heartbreaking because it feels like, Wow, that even for wrestling, that just right. feels and he's not so. Even, he's, uh, he, he, it's not even that he's like blow you off. It's like he's outwardly rude. You know, right, it's like right. so. Okay, but but there's a couple of stories out there, like Howard Brody has told me, like ribs that Dusty has played on Howard. Like they were going up. Howard wrote Dusty's biography, as some of us may know, and so they were driving up to Georgia to visit Dusty's sister. And Dusty's like, I want you to have this room. Um, this is going to be more comfortable for you. And then Dusty goes upstairs <laughs> and turns all the air in the house to like zero. And he's like, and Howard, he's like freezing Howard Brody to death. <laughs> and the next morning, he goes down and he's like, How'd you like it in there? I gave you the good room. <laughs> and the thing is, and like once he said to Howard Brody, he's like, Remember, we're not fat, we're just, we're just would just chubby so like he's aware you know he's aware my theory is that it's overcompensation mm. because he grew up a fat poor kid with a lisp and he turned that into gold baby think of anyone else who can do that he had so much charisma and he he's one of the few guys that i've been around in this business that's bigger than life and yeah. um you know, you could say he's out of shape or he's fat. You're never around Dusty Rhodes seeing him wrestle or in the dressing room and you think there's a fat, out of shape guy. Right. He had, an he had an electricity to him. And I don't care if it was just walking in from the car to the building. And that is unusual because I've been around every big name. And I've seen that very rarely. Superstar Graham, mid-70s. Dusty kept it. He kept that veneer. Even when he got older, it was still Dusty Rhodes. Yeah. 
There's and, something very um, special about him. You could you could you could tell yeah. even just watching him, even just from home on TV. It was just like you just felt the power. Like it's hard to describe. Like I find myself, look, I'm a grizzled veteran. I've seen and heard it all. And I've caught myself even in the present day watching an old dusty promo and and getting emotional like getting like oh my god am i am i gonna start crying right now like i'm not even exaggerating like like the the promo from wcw with dustin um the view never changes you know that one it's like it's probably the last great dusty Rhodes promo where dustin's crying and he's hugging him and you're going this is real (laughs) i don't care what anybody says this right here right now in this moment is real yeah or imagine the seventies of like Terry Funk costs him the title. Like, mm. Oh my God. Like, you know, Terry Funk, there's another episode, but just as another sidebar, so many people had classic, had the most classic parts of their career in Florida and nobody will ever know about it. 1979 cornrow Terry Funk, such a great unheralded part of his career. He was a wild man during this period. I put up, I put it up with any period of his life. No one talks about it, but man, 79 cornrow Terry Funk, Florida fans will know. Was that when he poured the motor oil on his head? Am I, is that? That was 82. That was 82. Okay. Okay. Um, I mean, not that Funk was ever not great. Not that he ever didn't provide the greatest moment, most memorable match and or moment of any show I've ever seen him on. But just from era to era, my two favorite era were like Beefy coming off the NWA title into Paradise Alley. Because he, he was truly scary then. He was big. That was his bulkiest and everything. Frankie the Thumper era. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, 79 Florida Cornrow. Those are my two Terry Funk eras. Um, and I know, and like Don Morocco. Another guy, 7980 Florida. Somehow that's on um, YouTube now. It didn't used to be. And I, it was like holy grail footage to me because I'm like, nobody will ever know how cool like Don Morocco and Steve Kern were, the matches they had. Because mm. it was a whole different thing back then. Like, I don't know what people would do with a match like that today. It would be so cool. It would be like, I mean, retro is whatever is was cool to you as a 10 year old like you're a generation or a half generation below me this is the trade-off i call it the led zeppelin trade-off okay i have friends that are older than me in their in their 60s if you can even imagine such a thing i will be soon enough imagining such a thing i yeah i hear it only gets better i hear, I hear you only get better looking and healthier so there's 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 good yeah. things i hear Anywho, <laughs> sarcastic look for those of you not on video. Um, what were we talking about? Now I've derailed myself. Your friends that were a little bit older than you. Thank their, you. Their I call it the Led Zeppelin dilemma, and it's this. I am a little older than you, which means I'm not as current. I'm going to die sooner. God. But however, those guys in their 60s saw Led Zeppelin live. And all that shit. And I saw wrestling at the Miami Beach Convention Center at 1975 with my own naked steaming eyes. 1976, Dusty Rhodes against Superstar Graham. The stuff of legend. 
And there is no, it's the, it's the, that kind of credibility is the coin of the realm. It's one thing to know that Led Zeppelin was probably pretty good at Madison Square Garden and watching the song remains the same in 1973. I have a pretty good feeling after watching it seven bazillion times, stoned out of my mind, that they were pretty good in 1973. But I have no idea what it was like to show up there at 20 years old and smoke a joint from the third row and see them debut a whole lot of love for the first time in the early 70s. Like, so the thing is, if you were there, you were there. And that's the only that's the only coin of the realm that the older people have. There's people older than me. Would I want to be as old as them? Not really, but they saw Led Zeppelin and I didn't. And yeah. would people want to be as old as me? Probably not, but I saw Dusty Rhodes and superstar Billy Graham. And that's that's the conundrum of the Led Zeppelin thing. It's like the older you are, the more cool shit you saw. And yet, if it's too old. You don't even care about it because when I met Luthez, I didn't even care because I like the heels so much. Mm. I made sure I got my picture with Jim White and Nick Bockwinkle the same day as I met Thez, 96 Tampa at a CAC. I'm like, eh, it's like meeting Abe Lincoln. I know he's, <laughs> I know he's historical, <laughs> but eh, I'm a heel guy like Buddy okay. Rogers. Oh my God. Did you ever meet Buddy Rogers? No, I didn't. He what, he oh. died when I was in high school, I think. Wow. Yeah. Never. I mean, Blassie and Buddy Rogers are two idols that I never thought in a billion years I would meet. And I met both of them. And uh, they were both exactly what you expect. Buddy Rogers yeah. comes in looking like the human virgin version of a 1956 Cadillac. Like, Jesus, if a person could have fins, like he had his same hairdo and like a silk shirt, like comes in right. strutting like Biddy, like, um, like, you know, like Buddy fucking Rogers. Right. And of course I met Bruno and, but anyway. Okay. So before we get to the end of the show, um, you have time for one topic or two. You want to do something psychological or I current? I would be more than happy to to push the the envelope a little bit. Well, as as far as current, here's the thing. I try not to get too much into current wrestling, okay. not because I don't. I actually follow it, and a lot of it I I still enjoy, believe it or not. But there's so many people that do that and do it better than me in podcasting that I try to keep it old school. So maybe maybe All right. Well, you that. know what? There's probably going to be enough people talking about that anyway. But so I'll just say one line about it. Oh, you're talking about the flare stuff. Is that what you're thinking? Right. And then we'll talk about and then we'll end on something psychological and then we'll have the big blow off. OK, I also want you to get a chance to mention Hardway Art a little bit, too. I yeah. Mean, well, you know, here's what I'm doing to help with you out here. Really? I'm really I mean, it's like an ongoing joke now. It's like Spinal Tapish. Now I'm going like 15th year of um, threatening to unleash this company. But I have truly put it on the front burner because I've had everything I've ever needed in life, just not at the same time. So it's a matter of having time, money, motivation, the mental and physical wherewithal. And it's like, if I have one thing, then something else goes wrong. So life has been getting in the way, but I have devoted 2022 to the website, hardwayart.com. Right now, you can find us on Facebook, Hardway Art, or just look me up, Howard Baum. I'm more than happy to, to befriend whoever seeks me out, and you can find my Hardway Art from there. This is the year of it. 
And what I'm working on is Andy Warhol-esque pop art, canvases, posters, t-shirts with a very cool retro grindhouse Tarantino vibe. And it will come out. This is the year I'm going to do it over my dead body. Promise you people. And I try not to mention it. I want to be more like my idol, Jimmy Page, and just be all secretive and then unleash it one day, you know? So I'm not going to toot that that much. But let me just say one thing about the Ric Flair thing. Sure. And and Hardway Art, too, just to be clear, it's all based around your classic wrestling photography. That right. And all these right. photos I took, it's, as Jimmy Page would say, presenting an old photo in a new frame. And what I'm doing is taking my old, my greatest, my classic photos and blowing them up to gorgeous works of art, either manipulated into pop art style pieces or just plain, naked, perfect, geometrical, human form wrestling photos. So that's all coming, folks. That's great. Book stuff and T-shirt stuff, too. Be patient. I'm not talking about it because I'm trying to do it. And I don't want to, like, you know, be the boy who cried wolf about it. But I promise you, I am trying. I'm actively working on it. Well, that's great and, because I think it sounds like something that a, a lot of people, myself included, would be very interested in. It sounds cool as hell. I mean, honestly. And, I, I, and unique, unique. I mean, you, no one's doing that. It seems like it's such a no-brainer, but, like, that is a unique I, thing. The, the, I mean, yeah. Yeah. So I appreciate all that. And uh, we don't even have to talk because I'm going to do a major, you know, I'm going to do the major tour. I'll do the Brian Solomon tour. Uh, you know, when I'm ready, I'm going to call in all my favors and, you know, the people will be sick of me in no time. But all right. Well, now you get a chance I, to bury flair, right? Isn't that I, I just I just want to say one thing, because my 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 thing is I see both sides of the coin. And as I put on Facebook, I think that this flair thing, meaning the fact that you're talking about the fact that he's training for a comeback match. Right. right? right. I don't know if it's a full fledged comeback, but he's training for one more match. Right. At the age of 73, I think he is now. Right. So this is this is either pointless and suicidal or. And hear me out, world. If you're going to give up on being a normal human. Give yourself into your character. Be an alcoholic. Allegedly enhance your physique through non-natural materials, which he's got to be. His arms are better than any 49 and up person I've seen in recent memory. I don't know what the rest of them looks like, but let me tell you this. He's a freaking inspiration. I'm in my mid. And he has had more fun in the last week than I've had in the last 12 years. What the hell's going on? So whatever he's taken, I want some. And you know what? He survived everything that life has thrown at him. A lot of his shit is obviously his own fault. And he's not a responsible adult. And he's not an introspective human being. But goddamn, if he doesn't know how to be Ric Flair, like how many people would have something that works? That's the only thing that's going to bring them any money. And you may remember, and you might have been around him this in, at this point of time after his supposed retirement, he attempted to become normal at one point. Do you remember that? What like what phase are we talking about? Like, like you mean a, after he left WWE? Like I think so. Like I that? think so. Yeah, like he did a he did his big shoot interview, which was like unheard of. And then, oh right, the high spots thing. Right, and he and, did and, like, and he came across very normal on that. I have to say, like he did seem introspective in, in, in the shoot interview you're talking about. 
I think there was a brief period where he tried to be normal. And then I saw that, I think somebody like Meltzer said, like he figured out that there was no money in being Richard Flair, the normal guy. Mm. And he goes, screw it. I'm going to be Ric Flair. Now, if you're given a chance to have a successful gimmick in life, as he calls it, it's called over for life, which you got to appreciate and understand because look at all these guys that are scrounging around VFW halls right now. And Ric Flair is out there talking about drip, which I still have no idea what that is. All the hip, you know, he's in rap videos. I mean, he's exactly every rapper in America knows Ric Flair and loves Ric Flair. And these are guys that I don't even think they were, some of them were even born when he was in his Right. Totally. Totally. They just appreciate his, his swagger, which he was ahead of his time in that. So the question is, okay, do this or not? Obviously not because there's no upside. How is it ever going to look good? How is it ever going to be anything? Listen, Tempest Storm, could probably and did probably strip at the age of 92. That doesn't mean she had to. Nobody's contractually obligating you. I mean, you did it. You climbed Mount Everest. You don't need to do it again now that you're 90. You prove that you were the best. What? How could you? Now you're going to go out there half-dressed and barely move, and it's going to look like shit. The great Luthez didn't almost die was not an alcoholic and looked like shit in his comeback when he, when he was 70 or whatever. Chono. Was, yeah. And it, and it was like five minutes, you know, and look at like Dory that. Funk matches. Dory Funk takes care of himself. Yeah. He looks like a guy who does a lot of cardio and it's an embarrassment. Why, why would you have that? The only thing I, I mean, I mean, a long time ago, we gave up on the idea that he would just age as an elder statesman like a Buddy Rogers. Yeah. How much more justice would he have done to himself by just buying some nice suits and being soft spoken? He let his ego take over or his id, depending on how psychological you want to get, because he used to never say a bad word about anyone when he was champion and he conducted himself perfectly. Now, that he's out of it, he sucks up to who is who is ever in power. Yeah. And and just he, he's, he's someone, semi- I was gonna say he's somebody that I wish did not have Twitter for sure. You, you know what I mean? Like like somebody should be running that for him, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah, I don't even check his, but I mean or like, even just social media in general. I, I think it, it should not yeah, yeah. You know, like it only tarnishes started- him. Superstar Graham and Ric Flair should start their own uh, PR Oof. company. Don't That's you another think? one. That's another one. The thing with like, Graham, and I, I'll make it really quick, but like one thing, when I had a long conversation with superstar Billy Graham, it was a phone interview. And what I noticed from him is that he only wanted to talk about himself. Anytime that I asked him his memories or opinions on other people, he became actually annoyed annoyed oh. with me like well why what you want to talk about the grand wizard what, what are you asking me about that for uh, dusty Rhodes? What, are, are we talking about me you know like he just wanted to talk wow. about himself but i mean so he had that that kind of like egomania that so many of them have and i think flair has it too you know you know i think that narcissism is a term that's bandied around a lot these days but i actually did a paper on rick flair like 20 years ago and it was at the time it, talking about psychologically how you would 
help somebody transition out of one role, which was active wrestler to retiring because that's what he was doing at that time. And I made this whole big paper about it. And uh, I just made the point where he's this narcissistic man child who won't grow up. And I mean, you know, narcissists don't change. And I think that he's very easily explained because by all accounts, Flair does have low self-esteem. Once yeah. again, the underpinnings of a narcissist and not to be all flamboyant with my psychological knowledge here, but Dusty Rhodes, same thing. They're overcompensating by being assholes and not down to earth to their fans because they don't feel worthy. Mm-hmm. They feel, you know, believe it or not, Ric Flair, Dusty Rhodes, they've, Dusty didn't admit to it, but I've seen enough and Flair has admitted to it. Feelings of low self-worth and low self-esteem. And I think a lot of this being better than to people is just so the people don't don't see through their charade, so to speak, you know, like so they don't get found out. Um, But conversely, somebody like Terry Funk, equally a big name and so down to earth. And I said to Vicky Funk, Terry's late wife, who was great. Um, She was like a female Terry Funk. She was just the greatest, really nice, great, funny human being. And I said to her, how come Terry is so cool? Everyone else is such an asshole when it comes to the big names. I go, he's the, he's the most down to earth of any of the huge legendary names. And she goes, cause he was always Terry Funk. He never had a try to be anything else. And that's the difference. Terry Funk is just Terry Funk. These guys are pretending to be Ric Flair and Dusty Rhodes because they never really took the time to know themselves or they're coming from a place of low self-esteem. That's what I believe. That's my psychological look at it. And Flair is a classic narcissist because Flair is like Trump. And I'm also guilty of this because if you tell me you like me, I'll friend you back. I'm like, oh, thank you so much. How many children did you kill? Anybody could have a bad day, but um, it's like anybody that likes you. You ever notice Flair likes you to the extent that you can either help him or you like him. Yes. And what, what does he say in every interview? Oh, this kid was so respectful. He came up to me. He spoke to me. He asked my information. You know, like if you treat him like a God, he loves you. He'll put you over. And it doesn't matter if you suck. Right. You put Mongo over for the last 30 years. Right, right. Yeah. And, and, and my, in my interactions with him were very much like that, where he knew that I was a huge fan and I had been since I was a kid. And there was a brief period there where he really liked being around me, like whenever, cause I wasn't on the road all the time, only a few times a year, but whenever he'd see me out there, he would, he would call me over at the bars and things like that. And I'm going like, why the hell is Ric Flair calling me over? I'd be thinking I'm going to get fired. You know, I better get to this elevator in a hurry, but he liked to be around me. And I'm not saying it's because I'm a big deal or anything special, but I think it was because he knew that I like worshiped him. I tried to keep it low key, but he could yeah. tell, he could tell I would pick his brain about the horseman and Roddy Piper. And right. he liked that. He liked telling the stories and things like that. That was, that was a big part of it, but you're right. You could, you know, it was, it was feeding into him. Yeah, it's, you know? it's classic narcissist because anything he talks about is related to him. He's like Ricky Streambo, my greatest opponent. 
like whatever it is, it's in relation to me, like my daughter, the greatest wrestler. Right. I mean, like, you know, but uh, I think I think my psychological topic is I mean, I don't know if you want to go long. I'm game for it, but it's I mean, we could do it. It's a good topic so we could save it or what's the topic? OK. Um, now, I've been running at the mouth so much I have to regroup. All right. Um, is it necessary in today's day and age post K fabe for a wrestler to live their character, to mm. live their gimmick, to actually portray to the outside world that they are what they represent as their character. And there's but, two sides to this coin. Yeah. And I have an opinion on both, but I have a definite opinion on one that I think it should be and why. Okay. Yeah, go for it. I mean, well, well let me ask you. You this. don't really, you don't really see it anymore. That's the thing. You don't. I mean, you well, used to see you like this. Randy Savage would be on the Arsenio Hall show, and he'd be in character doing doing his interview. You know, you don't see that kind of thing anymore. Right. And what I'm getting at is this: I see a lot of young guys, and the whole idea is to, if you're in the ring, you want as much mojo and aura surrounding you as possible. In the olden days, the reason that I was scared. On a, on a primitive level of Abdul the Butcher, King Curtis, Ox Baker, Joe LaDuke, because they looked like maniacs and you had nothing to contradict that. Nothing to contradict that except magazine articles that said how they gouge people's eyes out and eat them for fun. So you're seeing these people in the flesh, the Sheik, your boy. I mean, come on. You think like, oh my God, these guys are literally capable of murder. I literally thought Abdullah the Butcher and the Sheik killed people in their spare time, and I didn't know why they were wasting time wrestling because I thought, <laughs> surely they are such maniacs. Yeah, you'd have but, that question in your head, even thinking that you're smart, and you're going, I don't know yeah. about these guys. I don't know what's going on over here. This, there's some craziness going on here. I know I had that just seeing pictures of the Sheik in the magazines, that picture of, of Red Shoes Dugan with his face burned. Right, and I'm going right. like, he really freaking burned this guy. What's going on here? You know, like that. Kind <laughs> right, of right. So, okay. So I know some young kids makes the air quotations for those of you who can't see, which is all of you. I know some young kids in the business and it's like, I try to impart to them and I have friends that own wrestling schools and I go, listen, I'm not calling myself an expert, but I'll tell you one thing that I am an expert on. And that is, what would it hurt you to portray your character to give your overall thing more realism wherever you are? Why would you want to go on social media or in real life, just undo all the hard work that you just put into your promo, your whatever you're trying to do, your image, you look like a big tough guy and then you do something nice or you show your real name or you like, the only person in today's modern professional wrestling who gets it is MJF. God, yeah. Because nobody, nobody ever catches him being a nice guy, which right. is the job. That used to be why people did it. When I was a wrestling manager, it was like a license to act like a jerk. That was the whole thing. When I, when I first saw Fred Blassie as a kid, he's like, are these ugly kids? I'm like, oh my God, this is like, who gets to behave like this? This is the greatest thing ever. And like today it's like, oh, I just play an asshole on TV. 
but here's my right. kids and here's my wife and I operate a gym. Let me just take every ounce of mojo away from myself. So you believe nothing I do. And I think once you took kayfabe away, being in wrestling, and I've said this before, is kind of like just being in an acting troupe now. It's like, I'm a wrestler. I'm, I'm stupid. I don't care if I'm a good guy or a bad guy. We do this. We do that. It's comedy. It's talking skills. It's music. I do a dance. Oh, this will get over. It's funny. Right. Oh, the crowd likes to chant. But what the fuck does that have to do with Jack Briscoe versus Bob Roop and King Curtis keeping character in front of a bunch of marks? Right. Which is why I say... Now, this gets me off on a whole other rant because I am deeply passionate about this. But I call it up to 1984 wrestling, up to after that, sports entertainment. Because I don't even want to muddle the issue. You can't judge somebody's work by what they're doing today. Yeah, but, you know, pro wrestling is also this thing that has it's constantly morphing so much. Like, it's not like a sport or something where you know, in, in a way, it's more like music or movies where like it, it becomes if enough time passes, it almost becomes unrecognizable to what it was, because we could say right. like just like if, if you look at, you know, music of today, it's almost unrecognizable to like what music was in the 70s and 80s. And that was is also unrecognizable to music in say like the 20s and 30s. But you could say that about wrestling too, like the stuff that we're talking about and we love and we glorify. The 70s, 80s era, let's say, if you were a fan, like like my grandfather, you know, watching wrestling in the 40s and 50s, was Same looking, him, right? he was looking at the stuff when I was a kid and going like, this is ridiculous. This is a right, joke. What, right. what are these guys doing? Okay, it just, but it just seems to be wrestling is like it's like quicksilver. You, you just okay, can't you can't but, do that with it, you know? But I do have one argument for that. That is the evolution argument. That's the evolution argument. Yes, it's still professional wrestling. It's just changed. That's the evolution argument. But I have one caveat to that, and that's this. Without kayfabe, it's not professional wrestling. That's a very and good point because that is that, a fundamental and, and, change. And, and that's my fucking bomb that I drop, and that is my mic drop moment because that's the shit right there. That's what I'm talking about. Are you going to portray a role to the world and fool everybody, including your family, and putting some goddamn believability into it? Or are you going to look like a monster and people are going to be curious about you? And then you're going to go on Twitter and go, hi, this is Rodney. And I'm, uh, you know, it's all what? So that, that, that's why I pose the question to you that in today's environment, is it important to work a gimmick? to live your gimmick, to be your character. And no, it's not necessary. I'll answer my own question. I'll let you talk, of course, on your own show. There's two, there's two answers to that. One's the easy answer. I'm a wrestler. I get to look cool, have my abs, my gimmick, my gear on the internet, be famous, move up. People see me, they hear my name. I seem cool. I mix with this one and that one. Okay, good. Now you're one of a billion people who's interchangeable. Or you could be some freak who came out of nowhere, who never spoke. Remember the early days of Sabu when they wheeled mm. him out of that thing? That was the scariest thing since Abdullah the Butcher. How does nobody type tap into the psychology of actually like scaring the fans or being a heel? 
Because a baby face is easy and everybody wants to be a baby face. Right. Baby no. Faces, baby that's... faces don't do anything. The heels have always been the exciting, colorful ones who are carrying the load. And every baby face wants to be a wrestler now before he wants to be a character. It's, it's a tough spot that I think the wrestlers of today find themselves in. Because I don't know how much they can carry the blame because th this is the business as they found it now. They're stuck in, in this era. Now, right. I think it does them no favors. Social media does them no favors. And, and that right. is something that they can control, um, you know, where it's like you don't want to be on Twitter thanking your damn opponent for the match. I mean, don't right. do that. You know, that kind of thing. I think if wrestlers want to have social media, it should be something that's very clandestine and private that they do under their real, you know, identities separately and try to keep that separate. But the problem is that the way the business is now, um, they're, they're kind of stuck with it where it's like um, if they, I think that they're, they're afraid of, in so, of, of coming off looking like fools because if everything's out in the open now and the fans right. are smarter and this guy is out there going like, I'm the boogie woogie man and I'm going to do right, this. Well, right. then you, you look like a moron or, or even, even if you wouldn't, I think they're afraid that they might look dumb. Like the fans are going, who's this guy kidding? You know, who does he think he's well, kidding? You see, and whether they're right or wrong, I think that's what they're afraid of now. This, see, this is the thing. This is, this is a true thing. I've been offered to like come out and be a manager over the late, over the years over the last 20 years, different opportunities. And I'm like, absolutely not. Because I'd feel like an idiot if the whole crowd is in on it. When I was actually a manager in 1989, I think, 89, 90, 91, I did a little stuff, no big whoop. But I was a manager. I got to experience it in front of a Mark crowd, in front of a legit Mark crowd, and they hated me. It was glorious. And I at least got to do it. That was a bucket list thing. And what I'm saying is, I would feel like an idiot coming out. I wouldn't know what to do at an indie show now, or even a big time show. Oh, we're all in on it. How, what? Now you're judging my performance instead of my, of how much you hate me. Now you're judging how good of a heel I am and my performance and my gear instead of how much you hate me. Right, that's what See it's what become. Yeah. See what a difference that is? No, you're right. That is the one major thing that is not comparable to any other era where, look, the, I, I think in the past, I think, you know, obviously it's not like everyone in the world thought wrestling was real. And then all of a sudden they realized it wasn't. I mean, you know, you, you it was almost like an open secret for decades and decades. But the fan base, at least, was willing to suspend disbelief and play along with you way much more than they are now because back then they never let their guard down. So it was like, well, right. I guess I'm going to just go along with this, even though when I go home at night and I'm laying in bed, I know that what I just saw was a show, but when I'm there, I'm in it. I'm in the moment. I'm loving it. I'm not going to you know, be a wet blanket. I'm going to go with it. You know, there, there, there was a plausible deniability back then. They didn't rub it in your face. Right. And listen, and, and, and a very valid argument is this. Uh, we were spoiled in my territory of Florida, but in other territories, there were many ridiculous gimmicks. There was Bugsy McGraw, Jimmy Valiant, Man Children, Midgets, 
bears. Uh, but, but, like any good cheater, they denied, denied, denied. And they don't, you can't, I mean, they are between a rock and a hard place. And that's why I say wrestling is dead. Because if you can't do kayfabe, you're not doing wrestling. So now what is this? What is this thing? I mean, everyone has cool gear. Everyone looks good. Everyone delivers a promo in their same way. It's like one big bad athletic acting class. It, I yeah, mean. And, and very, like you say, not as much variety as there used to be. I was just, I just was talking to um, Manny Fernandez I had on here a couple of weeks ago. And we were talking about how like, you know, he'll get invited to indie shows and they want to give him an award or whatever. And he's watching the show and everyone's having the same match. Everyone's cutting the same promo. It's like yeah. you're watching a bad Kung Fu movie. And, you know, it's yeah. like he, he almost just wants to get up and go home, you know, and not yeah, even be there. Yeah. It's, you know, it's, like the super yeah. kick is a transitional move now. <laughs> right. I think he How even long? said that. I think he even said the same thing. The super kick. Because somebody brought me to a show and I'm like, I've been at three shows in 20 years. That's not even an exaggeration. And I go, when did this start? Like right. a super kick as like a transition. I mean, yeah. So you probably want to wrap me up by now. I mean, well, I'm good. But Well, uh, I mean, look, th- this this has been as fascinating as I knew it was going to be. And, and I know people are going to love this. So I, I, I let us go a little longer. I I'm worried that all my future guests are going to hear it and go, you know, you let Howard go an extra 20 oh minutes and you're trying to cut me off, but no, no, but this, but this is totally worth it. And we still could easily do another episode. I'm not even concerned about that. It's a tough standard folks. Don't feel bad. <laughs> I've been, I've been at this quite a while. We, we, it took me quite a while. You should have, I mean, geez, I'm a, I'm a seasoned grizzled piece of whale meat now, but you should have, I mean, ask Brian sometime about my first appearance. I sounded like Pete Letterberg after a six year Adderall binge. Like there was something seriously wrong with me. He, he, he didn't use it. He, he didn't use it. And for some reason he let me have another chance. And from there I walked in that Dora star, baby. <laughs> But no, the, the early days were rough, but I finally got to a point where I can express myself. So that's good. And by the way, kudos to you, because you're I mean, you you just come off like I thought I was going to in the beginning, like cool, common, collected. And it just I, you know, I'm like Richard Lewis. I can't like it. It doesn't work out that way with me. But you're like, you know, you're a natural at all this stuff. So more power to you. Wow. Well, thank you. I, I don't even know what to say. I guess I'm I'm fooling everybody very well. Then. It's, it's working. <laughs> we all are. That's we great. All are, That's great. <laughs> we but, all are, apparently. Uh, but no, I mean, totally. And I, I say this a lot to people on here, but I absolutely mean it this time. I, oh, I mean it every time. But I mean, I really mean it that we can definitely do another one of these and probably soon. Um, you know, I haven't repeated any guests yet, but when I start doing that, I'm definitely going to have you back because uh, there's so much to get into without a doubt. There's oh, and by, by the way, it. I am also doubly honored that I'm like among your first run of like your hot streak of your debut shows and everything. I'm highly honored and I'm glad it worked out. I think it was spectacular. And uh, I could uh, I could play that, tipa, that piece. Uh, um, that's all, folks. I could play that piece of tape I have for you now as a blow off to my segment if you want. I couldn't think of any better way to to close the segment. 
Okay. Well, this is going into the archives, folks. A rare non-605 appearance from the Magnificent One. This is a piece of tape from his upcoming Netflix special, uh, as yet to be named because I'm not that quick today. Anywho, okay, rare Magnificent One tape found on the cutting room floor from Netflix special. All right. What's all this I hear about? Trans fats. Trans fats everywhere I look. First of all, gender identity is a real thing. Learned about it in school. Some people are not always necessarily the sex that their body portrays them. So more power to them. I am an ally. Then you take all that and you have to fat shame them. Trans fats. I have never heard anything so disgusting and reprehensible. Who puts together? Where is the politician? when they're talking about what really needs to be addressed in this country. Also, as you know, I'm firmly against the environment and uh, charity. I don't believe in, uh, God, I don't know if I really sound like myself anymore. I don't believe in, uh, in uh, responsible gardening, whatever the hell people are into today. And, um, I don't know, Brian. I'm not particularly feeling myself today. I better end this right now. Maybe do a B1 that you can really use. Well, I had no idea that the Magnificent One was this outspoken and, and this political. <laughs> Beautiful. Thank you, Magnificent like, One. Thank you, Howard. Know could, you know, it's been so long. I don't know if I could do any characters. Between backstage banter, I'm trying to work on two new characters, which is religious nut Fred Blassie. And um, Catskill comedian Harley Race. Absolutely fantastic. And I've, been, and I've been walking around the house trying to get them right. I almost tried to debut them today, but I'm, I mean, seriously, I do have to have a few drinks in me for it to flow. But the Blassie would be like, um, my man, Jesus Christ, he's the greatest personal savior you could ever imagine, McMahon. And... Um, but I also got to say, reincarnated King Curtis became oh, yeah. an instant favorite of mine. I have good ones. I have. Good I ones almost died when I heard you do reincarnated <laughs> King Curtis. I really did. I almost died. Uh, uh, well, Howard, we'll, we'll, we're going to save a lot of those characters for the next one. That'll keep people on the edge of their seat. We'll just oh, tease I them. We're recording. Jesus Christ. Well, that, that is a preview then. Yeah. So believe it go. or not, we are recording. Oh, right. and, okay. uh, <laughs> I forgot. I was already, I was already That's thinking okay. about my bologna. Hey. I was already thinking about my bologna sandwich and you. So we, uh, we are, we are wrapping up in this <laughs> record length. Shut up and wrestle. I'm going to let you get to your bologna sandwich and your you <laughs> You did, I would, you did a classic uh, interrogator's trick. You got me so worn out, I forgot I was actually being recorded. Hey, I Kudos forgot to too. You. It's okay. I think everyone <laughs> listening probably forgot to. I hope, <laughs> I hope you enjoyed that preview, folks. Excellent. <laughs> uh, thank you, Howard. This has been great. Hey, I, I can't tell you, you brother. what a unique experience. Thank you. It always is somehow, man. I appreciate it, man. There you have it, folks. One chaotic madcap and hilarious conversation with the inimitable and irreplaceable Howard Baum as well as the magnificent one of course can't forget him and whatever other characters 
pop into Howard's head because as far as I'm concerned, they're all gold. So I hope you got a kick out of that. I sure as hell had a kick out of doing it. And Howard will be back on this show. Uh, make no mistake about it. And in the meantime, please check out his um, his website, Hardway Art. If you're interested in his amazing photography, it is well worth your attention. Uh, meanwhile, what is also well worth your attention is this podcast, Shut Up and Wrestle, because next week, to commemorate the 20th episode, can you believe it, 20 episodes of this, right? To commemorate the 20th episode of Shut Up and Wrestle, we have another legend of 1980s wrestling. I've been talking about her recently, but she will be my guest next week, the Perfect 10 Baby Doll coming to shut up and wrestle next week. So keep an eye out and keep an eye out for this podcast because shut up and wrestle can be found a variety of ways. Of course, there is our website, S U a W pod.com. You can also find it on Spotify, um, Apple podcasts, Google podcasts, podcast addict, or wherever you find your podcasts, you'll find it. Um, follow us uh, or be, even become a member of our Facebook group, Shut Up and Wrestle with Brian uh, Solomon on Facebook. You can find it there. Join the conversation. We're always having a good time there, and you should be having a good time too. Um, my book, Blood and Fire, the unbelievable real-life story of wrestling's original chic. Find it wherever books are sold, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, wherever you want to go. You will find Blood and Fire in digital, audio, or print form. Um, if you want to read the articles I write, Pro Wrestling Illustrated, you can find at getpwi.com. Copies can be purchased there. Inside the Ropes Magazine, you can find at insidetheropesmagazine.com. And if you're looking for me on social media, as I've said, on Twitter and Instagram, I am Brian R. Solomon. If you go to Facebook and look up Brian Solomon Writer, you will find my, my author page on Facebook. And those social media platforms will also have links to my official author website if you are that interested in me. You now have all the information you need. So once again, as always, this has been Brian R. Solomon asking you to keep those cards and letters coming in and reminding you to never put your trust in money, but always put your money in trust. So long, wrestling fans. <laughs>